we see it working in our hands and we're beside ourselves thinking, wow, we've figured out this technology. And the feedback that we got was, why the hell would I want to give my customers longer lasting produce? The garbage can is a really great customer of mine. And I just, it like hit me between the eyes. It was like, oh my God, this is why the world screwed up. What do Oprah Winfrey, Katy Perry, and Andreessen Horowitz have in common? It may have to do with avocados. Wait for it. Our next guest is tackling the food waste problem where nearly 25% of fruits and vegetables are lost globally. And a shocker to some, North America is among the global regions with the highest level of food waste. For the company Appeal, mitigating food waste is a global problem that puts real strain on our food system, our pocketbooks, and the planet. Appeal's plant-based protection that adds another layer of what already naturally exists on fruits and vegetables makes fruit last two to three times as long and today is commercially available for avocados organic apples and citrus fruits the idea has attracted a number of high-profile investors including celebrities Katy Perry Oprah Winfrey Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund GIC the Wojcicki sisters and Dreesen Horowitz and today appeals valuation is just about you know two billion dollars it's backed also multiple awards from CNBC Disrupt the 50 and Fast Company's most innovative companies I chat with my friend James Rogers founder and CEO of appeal when we were together in Oklahoma City about his journey over the last decade and how he's finally getting closer to his why in the first place. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact, purpose, and returns, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings. Before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. This way, you'd be the first to know of new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the US and Asia venture ecosystem, and that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now let's get started. So we are now in Cortado Ventures in Oklahoma City Woo. with Mr. Appeal, my good friend, James <laughs> Rogers. James, how are you today? I'm great, Sarah. Great to be here with you. I'm so happy to be here with you. Yeah, and in Oklahoma, of all the places Exactly, we right exactly. And I guess just to get started, I mean, what brought you to Oklahoma City when, when Mike and Nathaniel reached out? What was the appeal for Mr. Appeal? <laughs> no pun intended there. You know, so you know, kind of skipping ahead, Appeal is a, a venture-backed uh, company, and we're based uh, in California. Mm-hmm. And growing up in Michigan, I know that the only places to fish are not not the coasts, and uh, maybe those those areas are really heavily fished. So uh, when Nathaniel told me about what he was doing and you know, building a, a venture fund in the, the center of the country, I thought that makes a ton of sense. Uh, like, what can I do to help? And so here we are. Absolutely. And in fact, um, this is what I will be speaking about tomorrow. 75% of venture capital goes to three states, right? So mm-hmm. Massachusetts, New York, California, as we expect. Yeah. Um, and this is not a flyover state, as we were joking earlier. <laughs> That's right. No longer. Right. Fly Good. two state. Fly That's two right. State. Fly two state. So let's start at the beginning in true billion dollar moves fashion. Okay. What brought you to the work? I know it started with watching paint dry, solar paint, something along those lines. Yeah. I was graduate student studying this thing that I thought was just so cool, which was, wow, we could make buckets of paint that would dry into solar panels. And I just thought that was the coolest 
idea ever. And so I spent six and a half years of my life trying to understand why some of the paints worked and some of the paints mm -hmm. didn't work. And that is 0% interesting unless you're looking at what's happening at the molecular level, what's happening to the individual uh, atoms and molecules inside of those paints. And then there's a lot going on. And I spent six and a half years studying that. And as I was kind of coming to the end of my, uh, my PhD, I was wondering what's next, you know, what, how can I take what I've learned and apply that to do something that would get me out of bed in the morning that would be like fulfilling. And oddly, I was reminded how many people were going hungry, which I think we all hear when we're kids, but then to be realized that I actually didn't know why Mm -hmm. There were so many people going hungry and found out uh, or was uh, realized that people weren't going hungry because we couldn't grow enough food. They were going hungry because the food that we were growing couldn't get to everyone that needed it before it went bad. And that problem is because food goes bad and in a really, really uh, kind of combination of experiences realized that somehow this solar paint stuff that I was working on had the potential to help in a technological way address mm. uh, why food goes bad. And that was the what really like got this whole thing started. Yeah. So, so make the connection here. I mean, what's the, I guess, technological connection from solar paint that would transfer over to food produce. It kind of hits you in the face when you, you think about, you know, this idea of food going bad and you compare, for example, like something like a lemon to a strawberry. Mm -hmm. And you realize, well, they're both made out of building blocks that nature reuses, but the strawberry melts into a puddle in a day and the lemon lasts for a month. What's going on? Well, the secret is in the peel of the lemon. And so what we started wondering about was, could we learn about the peel of a lemon? Could we use those exact same materials to create a type of paint that we would apply to the surface of fruits and vegetables that was made out of plants that would extend their life, that would uh, allow something like a strawberry to last as long as a lemon? And that was uh, the idea of a peel. So pretty much what metallurgists um, discovered with stainless steel, right? Adding that layer to attack the oxygen, essentially. This was one of the or one of the kind of thought experiments at the beginning of why might this be possible? Right. You know, we don't think about it because it's kind of long time horizons, but steel goes bad. Yeah, uh, it rusts. Uh, rust eats eats through that steel. Um, and that was until metallurgists figured out this really clever trick that you could incorporate different atoms inside of the steel, things like chromium, for example. And though by inc incorporating those elements, they would react with oxygen and form this little barrier around the outside of the steel. And that barrier would prevent oxygen from reaching the steel and prevent it from rusting and prevent it from going bad. And so the idea uh, with the peel was, well, if we've done this for steel and lemons are already doing this, it seems pretty likely that this could work for other types of fruits and vegetables. Right. So 
great idea. Um, even after your mom said to you, oh, honey, you don't know anything about food produce, though. <laughs> she was totally right about that. Yeah, I just uh, called her and said, mom, I've got this really, I've got this idea. And she said, oh, sweetie, that sounds really nice, but you don't know anything about fruits and vegetables. And she was totally, totally right. Uh, right. But I had spent a long time learning about these uh, paints. That's right. And so it was that kind of, okay, I don't know anything about the fruits and vegetables, but maybe we could learn that and we'll take what we've uh, learned in the in the material science side of things and apply that to this this yeah. new area. So 2012, you did your PhD and you pursued this <clears throat> path and applied for a grant. What sort of, you know, what was the next step, you know, from getting started and getting to the point of scale? Yeah, it was, it, it started out as just this idea on a piece of paper, you know, could we find a way to use food to preserve food? And there was some, you know, some thought experiments. Hey, the lemon works better than the strawberry. Okay. But we didn't know whether or not it would work. And so we needed to start doing some experiments, but we didn't have any resources to be able to do that. And so started looking around and talking to people about this idea. And I found that there were a lot of investors who would say, it sounds like a really great idea, but I don't, I'm not going to bet on whether or not you can do it. And so we we had to uh, find way we had to find you know where could we get some initial funding that would allow us to at least do some initial testing so that when we had those conversations with investors we would have something to show that they wouldn't be it would de-risk kind of the investment for them we were really fortunate to uh, get uh, initial grant from the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation, and that allows us to set up a laboratory in our garage and start start doing some of those initial experiments. So, if you think about the technical elements of it, you know this sounds simple, but as you said, right, you know there's there's a reason why this hasn't been done before. Um, what were what was so, some of the challenging times that you encountered? Geez, I mean, I think back, and it's like it's been ten years now, and so, and I think back to like those really early days, we weren't even cognizant of like how long of a journey that we were on. We thought that the journey that we were on was we were going to we were we were going to develop the technology. And by developing the technology, the world was going to beat a path to our door and recognize, you know, that this could be useful in so many different ways. That was not the case. In the early days, the big problem was uh, for us, we had some ideas about how we might be able to create these formulations. But how do you test whether or not they're working? There wasn't like a kit that we could buy off the store shelf that was, you know, the strawberry shelf life tester. We had to come up with those things. And so in a weird way, a lot of the early work that we did was around developing tools that allow us to quantify the benefit of the formulations that we were that we were creating so that actually the results of that work actually ended up being our first product were these videos that we could make that were these time-lapse videos that would allow us to compare a untreated strawberry to a treated strawberry and collect the the videos that showed how they aged with and without appeal that was like wake up think about that work all day on that go to sleep thinking about that dream about that do it again now hold that thought Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help. 
with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Yeah, so I'm, go- I'm going to go a little bit nerdy here. You know me. I, I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> why did you choose strawberries? And was it, you know, did you go to the spray mechanism first? Or did you think of different modes of um, building this product? How did you, I guess, put that idea into motion into this might be the product that would hit the shelves? It's so funny. I asked myself exactly this question. <laughs> uh, and I actually went to some, I uh, went to some experts in the field of fruits and vegetables and said, hey, if there was a technology that could help fruits and vegetables last longer, what fruit or vegetable would you focus on? Thinking that they would have all these great ideas and then I could work on those. And they, and they kind of scratched their heads and said, fruits and vegetables lasting longer. And it hit me that this was not even something that was being thought about. I was like, oh my God, this is even a bigger problem than I thought originally because we don't just have to create the technology we have to figure out what fruits and vegetables it's useful for and so i literally went to the usda marketing services website and did like built a little spreadsheet that was like like of all the different categories they list like how much is grown each year and then they list like how much is sold at retail and I just built a little spreadsheet and it was like, oh, wow, like we harvest a lot of strawberries and we don't sell nearly as many as we grow. There must be some waste that's happening there. Wow, those strawberries cost a lot per pound. If we could reduce the amount we were throwing away, that would not only be good for the planet, it would actually be really good business. But I had no idea that strawberries were a really difficult thing to apply our product to because you don't think about this, but like the strawberries that you buy in the store are picked in the field by hand and put directly into that little clamshell that you bring home with you and they're not touched again. There's no other step in that process. And so as I started getting into the field and started talking to producers and thinking, hey, there's a great opportunity for strawberries, realized practically speaking, it would be very difficult. To, to implement. One of the things that hit you was the fact that not only were people not thinking about it, but on top of that, some people did not actually want it, right? Because yeah. it would mean that people would buy less yeah. because you expect that your food will go bad after a certain time and you need to buy again. So how did you address all of that? Well, it started with shock. <laughs> uh, I remember, you know, we're jumping up and, you know, it's a, you know, we're a bunch of scientists and engineers that are just like blood, sweat and tears into figuring out how can we without refrigeration, without pesticides, without plastic, give fruits and vegetables more life so that we can feed more people with less resources. We see it working in our hands and we're beside ourselves thinking, wow, we've figured out this technology. And so we started talking to suppliers, people that you know grow and, and distribute fruits and vegetables. And we took it to them thinking that they were going to see the same thing that we saw. And the feedback that we got was, why the hell would I want to give my customers longer lasting produce? The garbage can is a really great customer of mine. And I just, it like hit me between the eyes. It was like, oh my God, this is why the world screwed up. The world's not screwed up because we don't have 
Solution. Solutions. The world's screwed up because the incentives are not there to adopt these uh, solutions. And I didn't realize that was the start of the next, you know, six plus years of my life trying to figure out how do you solve that incentive problem when you have a great technology. Yeah. So tell us more about that. I mean, when were you sort of confident that, yes, the product is ready. We have something here. We got our first grant in like 2012, like you said. Mm -hmm. We raised, uh, we used that to make some progress um, to raise a small amount of money from uh, some seed money in 2014. And it was about 18 months of work before we saw promising results from, you know, we were taking uh, uh, grape, like grape pressings, where they had pressed the grapes and used the, like fermented the grape juice into wine and then threw away the pressings. And we were able to isolate these plant materials from the grape pressings and apply them to fruits and vegetables and make them last longer. It took us like wow. 18 months. And, and it's so crazy to say this now, but it turns out that was the, that was actually the easy part yeah. of the work was figuring out how to do the technology. Um, so it was pretty quickly that we, we, we saw this. And in essence, to interrupt here, it's, it's essentially a chemical construct, right? So you can apply it, you can put it into, it's a substance that you can put in your spray, in whatever material that you put on the outer layer. So, so plants have this natural protective skin mm -hmm. on their outside. And it's basically a type of plant oil that's applied to the entire surface of the skin. And so we take that exact same material mm -hmm. and we mix it up into a, a sprayable liquid. And then we spray that liquid back onto the surface of the parts of the plant that we're eating. And by doing that, we augment that skin that's there to be a little tougher. And that toughness then allows the fruit to last, you know, two or three times longer without the refrigeration. And does plastic. it matter when you apply that? Like, does it have to be, you know, when you pluck it or? You can think of a fruit or vegetable like a I think of it sometimes like a battery yeah. that's plugged into a tree or bush, and then that tree is plugged into the sun. And so when you disconnect the fruit from the tree, yeah. you start to lose charge, Life, you can yeah. think of it as. And so the sooner you apply the product, the sooner you give the, the fruit more strength, the longer it can last. So you can still benefit when you apply the product further downstream, but you maximize the overall benefit if you apply the product sooner. Makes sense. So 18 months to get to, yes, this product works. We have something to go to market. And then it hits you that, okay, but not everybody wants it. Yeah. Uh, what was your next step? We all kind of had to take a hard look at ourselves and say, are we going to accept that, that our customer, this isn't something our customer wants? Or are we going to insist that this solution has a way to benefit the world and we're going to find it? And, you know, the fortunate thing is when you're that small early team, like everyone's there because they believe in the possibility of what they're working on. And so it didn't take much convincing for people to say, like, we know this is important. Okay, it doesn't fit in the obvious way that we thought it might fit into the, the current system, let's do something about it. And so what we what we started doing was thinking, who is this benefit obvious for? Who would see the, even though we might need to explain it, who would see the benefit of the longer lasting produce and say, I, I would like that um, product. And, you know, after going through kind of all the, this you know, huge list of different ways that longer lasting produce is value, the one, one of them that we landed on was, well, 
going back to that original calculation, actually, you know, grocery stores buy fruits and vegetables. And if they buy fruits and vegetables that they don't sell, that's money that they have wasted. So even if their supplier would like them to throw away some stuff, the, the grocery store doesn't want to throw away anything. So why don't we go and present these longer lasting options to grocers? And it turns out that this is something that grocers care about because it's an intensely competitive business and they don't want to waste anything they don't have to. And it turns out even more importantly, we figured this out later, they really want to be known for having the highest possible quality that they can because it is such a competitive business. And so what we did was we started going and, and working directly with those retailers to show them the benefits of longer lasting um, produce. And since they were the customer of the, the early suppliers that we were talking to, that allowed the retailer to request the, the treatment from their suppliers, which is what ultimately allowed us to, to get this off the ground commercially. Yeah, and, and I love this point because and I, I was thinking about that. This is so important because as innovators, as entrepreneurs, we're often working against current systems that exist, right? Where yeah. there are real incentives that you mentioned, which needs to be thought about. What do you think was important in that journey for you? I love that we're talking about this because I, I think about this all the time. Like sometimes I think about my experience at Appeal and think it, the thing I'm most grateful for is to have this kind of front row seat into the experience that it's not that we don't have the solutions. It's that the systems have incentives that are geared in a way that do not make the adoption of those innovations natural. And I haven't quite figured this out yet. You know, I, I can, but I'm grateful for the experience, you know, that I've had through Appeal of seeing uh, at least one example of how you get this going. And, and sometimes, like, the simplest way I think about it now is how do you figure out how the technology can impact a quantifiable metric in the system that you're working in that you can put a dollar sign on? And for us, even though it turns out now that our customers buy our product less about reducing waste and more about delivering a better product to their shoppers, the only thing that allowed us to get the opportunity to show what the list of benefits the technology could create was, was focusing on that one initial benefit that was showed up in the numbers. You know, the stores could calculate here's how many pieces of fruit we bought, here's how many pieces of fruit that we checked out at the register. We can calculate using those numbers how much we threw away, we know how much we bought the fruit for, here's the cost of our waste, and we can compare a store with the longer-lasting produce and a store without the longer-lasting produce. Now, even just saying that is a long description, and doing that work was four years of the team's life getting all of that 
um, set up. And so I have a suspicion that with these more complicated interdependent systems that that's a way in is always going to be the way in. I don't know. I kind of like to think about um, that problem, but that was what got us our start. So talk to us now about the business model. So you're able to quantify, okay, these are the savings that you get between when you apply the product and when you don't. Do you charge a, is it like a monthly retainer that you apply this? So it's evolved over time. Going back to this, like, how do you get something going? How do you do that zero to one? It was about these numbers that we could measure. But what we found out as we as we went along was in the same way that there was a incentive misalignment between the supplier and the retailer, there was even an additional incentive misalignment inside of the retailer themselves. And it's not until you get up close and personal with the problem that you realize you got to kind of forensics the whole system. And the conflict that we came across was that the retailer was split up into a procurement team that would buy products and a store operations team, which would be responsible for merchandising and selling the products. And the misalignment incentive you had was the the procurement team, uh, the people that bought the product were incentivized on buying more product than they bought last year at a lower price. And that's how they got their, you know, that's how they were rewarded yeah, whether or not they got promoted or their that's bonuses. Right. And then it was the store operations team that would benefit from reducing waste because they were the ones that got dinged if they ended up throwing stuff away. And so here we are talking, so, so the person that needs to buy our product, we're basically asking to pay for it, but the person who's benefiting mm. is store operations. And so you get procurement saying, I'm not paying for something that doesn't benefit my uh, balance sheet. And that was, a, that was one of those kind of higher resolution views of the system that then allowed us to adapt the way that we approached uh, our sales process and started understanding that, well, if the incentive of procurement is to buy more product at a cost that's lower, you know, than or, or an average cost that's lower than the year before, then if we really want to have an impact in these supply chains, we have to use our product to help our customers sell more product, sell more fresh produce, because that's the only incentive that procurement really has. And so what we realized was that we could help our customers and accomplish our mission of eliminating waste if, for example, we used our product to help our customer put a riper avocado on the shelf, for example. Hmm. Because when shoppers shop, they buy a lot more avocados if they're in that ready-to-eat condition when they're in the store rather than when they're in, you know, when they're those green stones. And so we could help procurement by allowing them to merchandise a riper avocado because before appeal, they were afraid to do that because the waste would increase right. and that and then they would get rejections of the shipments and the amazing thing that that's happened is now you know it's funny to think about like this maturity cycle now the suppliers are coming to us and saying we we understand how this longer lasting product like this longer lasting lime works better than you guys do and it's like this amazing feeling to think about 
kind of we come full circle now. We had to go through this zero to one incubation. What can we measure? How do we get it into a system that's really happy the way things are? Okay, it's waste. Some people kind of care about waste, but doesn't seem like most people do. Why do they not care about it? Oh, it's because it shows up on different people's balance sheets. Okay, now we figured out that and then that's gotten us to a scale where enough people have the technology in front of them every day. They're going, yeah, but you know, it's not only about helping the grocer be able to sell more avocados. I can also change my trucking route now because I can send full loads of lemons instead of sending partial loads of lemons because I have more time. Or I can, instead of shipping the lemons at 34 degrees Fahrenheit, I can ship them at 54 degrees Fahrenheit. And that saves me money. We tried starting that way. So it's so funny to be back to that point now but like six well, years. Well, you needed to build stakeholder in the future influence, right? I think that's a, I think that's a good way to say it, you yeah. know. And and I, I I suspect that you know any new technology, you know, this is where you get stuck because like it's so obvious if you just had a blank sheet of paper, right? What the system could look like with the new technology, but you're not starting with a blank sheet of paper. Of course. You're starting with like a very messy thing and you're trying to weave your, you know, like do the maze right. so that you've even got a shot to be able yeah, to Yeah, well, it's, it's the cold start problem as well, right? The yeah. zero to one to get to that level of iteration, to build influence, to build your winners and your traction to then get to the next stage. So that was a hard journey for you. Um, <laughs> zero to one. And you raised a ton of money to yeah. get to where you are today, over yeah. $650 million. Um, the question that I had was, at what point were you already break even? Like, how much did you actually need to get to a level where the business model worked, where you had enough buy-in to get to the next stage? When we raised money, it was always with the, here's what we've learned. Based on what we know now, here's what we think we need to do in order to get the technology acceptance to the next level that right. will can allow us to continue to grow to continue to grow the business. So, you know, in the begin, you know, we first raised money, it was about developing the technology. And then we raised money and it was like, "Hey, we've got this great technology, but how are we going to apply it at at scale?" Okay, then we had to raise money to to do that. And then it was, "Okay, now we we need to apply it at scale, but how are we going to service the Full, like this grocer won't work with us unless we can service their full their full network. So we need enough money to go build out enough distribution to be able to service their full network. And it's like incrementally going after what's the next puzzle that we need to solve or what we think we need to solve to get to that next that next so, maturity right. of the technology and and maturity of the business um, at, at the same time. So it was kind of like a back solve for, okay, here's where we are. Where do we think we need to be to get, where do we, what do we think we need to do in order to get, get to now, you know, national distribution of our product? Okay, we're going to need this many sites. We're going to need this many categories. That means we're going to need this much money to build out these regions. We have to do this much manufacturing, et cetera. The difficulties of our, of our, 
journey requires capital to put like install equipment at sites around the world in a ecosystem where the the product itself is continuing to develop. Understood. So paint a picture here. Say I'm Whole Foods, right? And I want to get a peel specifically applied to the avocados. What what does this contract look like with appeal? So it depends. Um, so for a retailer, if they said to us, we want 100% of our stores to uh, have have appeal, mm-hmm. uh, we work with almost every major avocado provider in the U.S. today. And so they just have to tell their supplier that I would like appeal uh, in my, I would like appeal in my stores. And there we have those, we have the equipment installed at those supplier facilities that allow them to deliver those appeal treated um, pieces of fruit. However, as I was I was mentioning a second ago, we now have suppliers that have come to us and said, you know, we we don't want to be told by the retailers what to do. We want to use this technology to to take this benefit to our retail customers and use it as a point of differentiation for us. And so we're seeing this like in real time shift from kind of the old model of the retailer is requesting the technology from their supply network and we are powering it in a way to suppliers saying we know we could build something amazing with this ourselves how about you power what we want to build that's going to allow us to to mm. deliver a, a differentiated product for our customers? So, so it's both are happening at the same time. And the reality is, I don't think the model's done yeah. evolving because because it's changed it's changed yeah. like three well, times. Well, well, in a way, it's great, right? Because then now you're. Sub- supplying your product to multi levels of the supply chain essentially. Yeah. I go back to, you know, we haven't talked about this at all, but you know, the reason that we started the company was not so that we could deliver better avocados to uh, to US or European shoppers. It was so that we could give, you know, in places of the world that didn't have access to refrigerated supply chains, didn't you know, didn't leverage, you know, the single-use plastic or the the pesticides, that we would have an alternative to those technologies and we would be able to, for example, connect small producers to urban centers where they would be able to collect more of the economic value of what they were producing. And so, like, when I kind of contextualize the journey that our company's on, we're really working up to the point where I hope that the model becomes that we're providing a plant-based solution to small producers around the world that allow them to participate in a food system that did not previously have access to, not because they weren't growing a mango that was just as delicious as the huge commercial operation, but because they didn't benefit from you know having a refrigerated transport station right outside their farm that was taking it directly to where it was going to be merchandised. And so as the technology behind our solution, as these plant-based formulas continue to improve, that future becomes more and more uh, possible. And that that is the part that like pulls me to continue to, to work on this because 
Reducing food waste, super, super important. That was what I was going to sort of double click on, right? We went on this big journey uh, <laughs> to essentially build value and assist uh, big names to do better from profit margin standpoint, things like that. When your initial why, something we talked about was to solve world hunger, essentially, right? And to eradicate waste. It feels like you were a little bit far away from that, though. Did you have to go all that way and I feel like this is just a story of like full circles our first product demonstrations for the technology were with small mango producers in Kenya and that's when we literally showed up in Kenya with backpacks and visited these small producers and we were doing trials of our solutions with with mangoes and for all of these reasons you know the training required, the lack of access to financial resources to kind of get that flywheel even started for our opacity and how you would navigate the regulatory environment in some of these countries. For example, we realized that that go-to-market would kill the company and that ironically, the, the fastest path to being able to benefit small producers in emerging markets was going to be to demonstrate the commercial viability of the solution in some of the more concentrated, larger developed markets. And we're just now to the point that we're implementing the technology now in South Africa for the first time, but it's taken us 10 years to get to that point. Having a technology that can benefit a small producer is actually the hardest technological problem that you could solve because it has to be extremely affordable. It has to be able to be mixed and applied with very low tech equipment. And it has to be able to be distributed widely enough to be able to benefit a, a hugely dispersed Right. Um, population. Where infrastructure is not built up as well. Exactly. And so it's like the same problem of not being able to connect everything in and it's difficult to connect everything out. And so it moves me now to think about how close the technology is to that level of efficacy. You have investors who are venture capitalists. Of course, you have the great Oprah Winfrey as well. Are they impatient investors? I mean, and recent to see your results? As we we're talking about, our first investors went back to 2014. And, you know, when they signed up to, to join what we were working on, you know, at that point, we weren't talking about selling better avocados to, you know, grocers in the US, we were talking about what this could mean for the global food system. And so I think, you know, they joined for for the right reasons. And they've been extremely patient as we've weathered this long uh, yeah. saga together. Yeah. And who you work with is maybe the most, I think, is probably the most uh, material determinant of of whether or not you succeed. Yeah, and talk to us a little bit about that when you chose your investors. I mean, one of the key um, topics of discussion, I've had founders here who've, you know, without naming names, uh, have said that they've been pushed by investors to take certain decisions because, as you know, with venture capital, it's about a shorter time frame, right? You need a 3x the fund, which means there needs to be winners in the game. How did you choose investors that were going to be aligned with you for the longer term? Well, I don't think you know until after the fact, and so I think that a lot of it's been luck, um, but it is a pretty small world. So I think the best possible thing that entrepreneurs can do is talk to each other, talk to people who've worked with the firms that 
that they're going to work with. I know for every firm that that we've worked with, I've spoken to several of the CEOs that are in their funds, and it's a relatively small community. And so I think it's just having those kind of conversations, which if you can do anything to kind of do your own due diligence, it's it's that. And that's very important, right? To rebalance the power dynamic. A lot of times people think that, you know, VCs with the checkbooks have all the power, but really we're in business because of founders like you. Yeah, it takes both, right? Like someone told me once, like, I loved this quote. I had never really thought of it like this, but labor, so us, we need capital the same way that capital needs labor. They're great at looking at market potential and opportunity and providing the capital, but that's a different skill than like operating the business and turning the capital into something. So I think it's an ecosystem and it pushes and pulls on each other. And, you know, I think like over the last 10 years, I've just kind of grown to appreciate like the role that each party has to play in that ecosystem. What do you think needs to change in the venture ecosystem? I love this question. Um, So there's a lot that I think could be improved. One of the big things that I think of just through the lens of appeal is when I think it was originally called venture capital because it was uncertain territory where you were investing and there weren't clear rules for how you would value something or how would you calculate the valuation of the company. And now almost feel like venture capital has become synonymous with investing in like software companies. And there's pretty clear metrics like at a at this stage you need to have this many clicks or at this stage you need to have this kind of churn rate at this stage x and so it kind of feels like some of the venture has been matured out of it and it's become more formulaic almost like you would invest in like a public company and so you know one of the things i love about what they're doing at cortado is more back to that like venture part, which is there's something valuable about what's happening here. There's not really a playbook for how to calculate that value, but we're going to kind of ride along beside you and figure that out along the way with you. And so I get excited about seeing a world where there's more uh, venture in, in venture capital. What was unexpected about your whole journey? <laughs> Pretty much the whole thing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I sometimes think like I, you know, originally got really excited and raised my hand to go work on a technology that I thought could have a really profound impact. And then somewhere along the way, I, I think I unknowingly raised my hand and said like, oh, okay, like it's not enough just to create the technology. Like now we're going to bring it to market. And then like somewhere else along the way, I kind of unknowingly was like, oh, now I'm going to scale this thing. And so, but I didn't ever think of that it would kind of come in stages and every single stage is full of like completely different challenges than the one that came before and almost if you kept doing it the way that you were doing it in the previous stage, it would not work. I was saying to one of my friends not too long ago, it was like, you just have to be pretty okay with not being any good at your job because anytime you're getting okay at it, you probably shouldn't be doing that job anymore. You need to be working on the next part of the business. Yeah, that's a good segue to a question that I had. I've had a couple of founders who did the zero to one very well and they sold their businesses like 780 million, close to a billion dollars and all that. But they realized that they couldn't scale themselves Mm. 
that they were not the right person for this stage of the business. Did you ever think that about yourself? I've thought that about <laughs> myself every day for the last 10 years. To me, I think about it and, you know, in the beginning, you take the trash out, not because you want to take the trash out, but you take the trash out because somebody needs to take out the trash. And so as you're building something, you're kind of normally doing the job that you don't have someone else to do. do. And when the business is early on or trying to exist in a complicated ecosystem, there's a lot of context required in order to make sure that the progress is happening towards the long-term goal. And so that's a really difficult so, so you kind of tease with, okay, well, maybe, maybe I can hand this part off. And then you realize that the way that you're kind of steering the ship, it doesn't have a manual yet. So it's kind of like, well, you got to, you know, kick this thing twice and like nudge this button. <laughs> and like, you know, if you feel a little wobbly, go this way. Like, it's very difficult to, or at least for me, it was very like, oh, I don't know how I would explain all that was necessary to drive this thing to someone else. Mm. But then as it goes along, all of a sudden, wait, we're selling a product to a customer that pays for it. And, you know, we're managing the business according to a PL. Like, actually, that looks a lot like another business. And then you start to go, oh, actually, this thing's starting to be able to, you could maybe like write the manual yeah. for how you, for how you fly this thing. But I think it just depends like that time frame depends on the ecosystem. Mm. Um, that Now hold that thought. Talking to loud hosted by Chris Savage is brought to you by the HubSpot podcast network, the audio destination for business professionals on this podcast. Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocket Book. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop, but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, talking too loud wherever you get your podcasts. You're trying to implement. When do you feel your journey would be done? Sometimes people will be like, oh, congratulations on, you know, appeal. And it's hard for me to accept that mm -hmm. until our product is being used in emerging markets by small producers to connect more of what we're producing into markets that will value those things. Like that was the North Star. Like that's what we set out to go do. And it's taken 10 years so far. But like when we get to that point, which I feel like we're rapidly approaching, then I will feel like, okay, the reason that we started this journey is fulfilled. And it doesn't mean that there won't be new avenues to grow and new potentials to be unlocked, but that will be like that nice tree that you yeah. get to sit under and kind of like enjoy the or reflect back on the journey. Well, James, we have so many rabbit holes to go on and <laughs> we will continue at drinks, but I am time limited here. So let me get to the quick session of billion dollar questions. These are fire questions. Okay. All right. First thing that comes to mind, what keeps you up at night still? Uh, depends on the current fruit that we are working on. If it's cucumbers, <laughs> so fruits keep you it's up. still fruit. Yeah, cucumbers still, or avocado. It depends avocado. on whatever the current fruit is <laughs> that we're bringing to market is the thing that keeps me up at night. A dark moment you can share with us that you were very close to giving up? I haven't felt that yet. Really? I haven't felt that yet. Hard stuff, but never like 
that's it. Yeah. Always it must just be kinda a way like, to solve it. Yeah. Like this needs to get done. Like mm-hmm. this really needs to happen. So okay. I, haven't, I haven't felt that yet. Uh quick one. We both went to Harvard last year. Um, how has that time reshaped your thinking? There are people out there that not only believe that there's a better path for the planet, but that are actually working on it. I don't think I've been that close to that before. Love it. Your biggest insecurity? Probably that I'm not good enough. An opinion you have that most people don't agree with? The solution's right in front of our face. It's already right here. We're looking straight at it and we just keep walking right by it. And finally, we get billionaires, unicorn founders and funders on the show. What will be your one question, your billion dollar question for the next guest? Ooh, I like that. What's something that you like remember uh, advice-wise from your childhood that you're surprised that you still remember today? Oh, then I have to ask that of you. Oh, Let's that's end with not that. Fair. Let's end with that. Oh, that's not fair. My wrestling coach in uh, high school I showed up to practice late one day because I had to make up a Spanish test. Yeah. And he made me do this this horrible wrestling thing called like Iron Man where you just sit in the middle and everyone runs around and wrestles you one at a time. And we just did that for an hour. And I was like the most exhausted I've ever been in my entire life. And I was like snarling and like <laughs> snot. It was gross. And he looked at me and he said, Rogers, smile. It's all in your head. And it like cut through me like a bolt of lightning and I was like holy crap like I have the ability to adjust right now how I'm experiencing this I haven't ever been able to shake that it's stuck with me till right now I love it and with that (laughs) smile it's all in your head thank you for your time and for your insights and I'm so excited for the journey that you're on and thanks so much for tuning in this week you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.